Bibles, please, to the book of Judges, chapter number 7. Judges, chapter number 7. For the past several weeks, we've been on a series that I've entitled Gideon's Gallery. As we walk through the, the pages of his story and look at the different pictures in the gallery, we learn not only a lot about Gideon and Israel and a lot about God, but hopefully we learn something about ourselves as we see ourselves in his sandals, so to speak. We've already considered his fearful call to think that here is a nation on, you could say, on the brink of destruction because of the fact that the Midianites and and their allies have just beaten their ears down for seven years, taken all of their goods. Uh, they seem to be a hopeless people. And in the midst of all of this, God calls Gideon uh, to be the light in the night and to be the one to lead the nation. And there is something fearful about a call like that. And then we saw his first assignment, and we talked about how important first assignments really are. And uh, they go a long way in, in not only in predicting, but in determining what our, our future ministry is going to be. And so uh, the first assignment is important. We talked about that. Then we talked about his faithlessness. Uh, the fact that even a great man like Gideon can have a breakdown in his faith. You know, we all like to think that our faith is so great, and it might appear to be that way, and on occasions it might be strong, but all of a sudden there is a, there is a test uh, that the Lord puts us to, and uh, we discover that our faith is not nearly as strong as we thought it was. And, and so Gideon, wanting an affirmation, of God's promise, uh, you know, the story puts out the fleece and uh, in the demonstration of, of his faithlessness. Well, tonight we're going to look at Gideon's faith. And uh, we begin in chapter 7 in verse number 1. And then Jerubbabel, who is Gideon, and all of the people that were with him rose up early and pitched beside the well in Herod, so that the host of the Midianites were on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vault themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand hath saved me. And now therefore go to proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whosoever is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart early from Mount Gilead. And there returned of the people twenty and two thousand, and there remained ten thousand. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people are yet too many. Bring them down into the water, and I will try them for thee there. And it shall be that of whom I say unto thee, This shall go with thee, the same shall go with thee. And whomsoever I say unto thee, This shall not go with thee, the same shall not go. 
So he brought down the people unto the water, and the Lord said unto Gideon, Every one that lappeth the water with his tongue as a dog lappeth, him shall thou set by himself. And likewise, every one that boweth down upon his knees to drink. And the number of them that lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, were three hundred men. But all of the rest of the people bowed down upon their knees to drink water. And the Lord said unto Gideon, By the three hundred men that lapped will I save you, save you and deliver the Midianites into thine hand, and let all of the other people go, every man unto his place. And so the people took victuals into their hand and their trumpets, and uh, he sent out all of the rest of Israel, every man unto his tent, and retained those three hundred men, and the host of Midian was beneath him in the valley. Now, it goes without saying that this was a fearful time for Israel. It was a time when everything seemed to be working against them. That kind of sounds familiar, amen? It kind of sounds like what, you know, we've been talking about for the last few weeks as the prayer list continues to grow and we, we see one need after another and we begin, you know, after a while you scratch your head and wonder what in the world is going on. Tony and his family, they're getting ready to move and you always hate to, you know, uh, lose a family like that. Nellie's being put in an assisted living place way on the other side of the town, and, you know, she can't be here plus her hardships. And here's Gala about to uh, uh, think may have to put her on dialysis, and uh, just one thing after another after another. The list just keeps going on and on. So there are times in our life, and don't ever forget the fact that life is made up of hills and valleys. It's, it's not all level ground. It's not all bad. It's not all good. It's a mixture of the good and the bad. And so during this time, they are, think about it now, first of all, they're following an inexperienced leader. I mean, you know, put it in the language of today for a church, this guy's never pastored a church before. He's just, you know, still wet behind the ears. He's just a a, a youngster. And so uh, there, there's no track record where he's proven himself. You add to that the fact that they are outnumbered four to one. <laughs> I mean, that's not very good odds. Whether you're in a barroom brawl or wherever you are, you want the odds to be better than four to one against you. But add to that the fact that these people have beaten them repeatedly now during this seven-year period over and over and over again. Well, you know, after a while, you begin to realize we don't stand a chance against these guys. But God, boy, I love that phrase. And I mean, you can go through the Bible and look that up. You ought to do that sometime if you never have. It'll give you a delightful study. Just look at those words, but God, but God this and but God that. And, and, and thank God for His intervention. God was preparing them for a victory. It was not, however, as one might think. Because the first thought on, a, on, on the leader's mind is, we've got to get everybody together. I mean, uh, you know, if somebody maybe ordinarily is a little too old to fight, we're outnumbered four to one, man, we've we got to have him. Somebody that ordinarily be too young to get in the battle, we've got to have him. We've got to have every hand on deck. We need everybody that we can get. 
And then God turns around and reduces the number all the way down to 300. Well, that's, I mean, that's not any kind of a strategy that, that any military leader would ever come up with. I'll guarantee you that. You never reduce the odds. When you're already behind four to one, you're not going to just keep cutting the number down. Now, in these first three verses, the first thing I want you to notice here in the story is the departure of the fearful. And this had to come as a, as a shocking surprise to Gideon. Uh, he's got 32,000, and, and of course, 22,000 go home. He's got 10,000, and God says, well, that's still too many. We, we, we don't need... Uh, uh, we don't need that many. And so God just keeps cutting the number down. Here, here's the thing. God knew their hearts. God knew their hearts. I'm talking about the ones that were dismissed. God knew what was in their heart. And, and you know, whenever you really look at this story, and I was thinking about it this afternoon, God knew that the majority was going to be fearful, and, and because of their fear, they're going to be hesitant in battle. That's never a good thing. He who hesitates is lost, or he gets his nose punched mighty flat. I, I mean, you, there comes a point and a time, and, and I always taught my boys, you don't fight unless you've got to, and if you have to, you fight to win. You don't fight for a draw, you fight to win. If you've got to fight... You know, if it's that important that you've got to fight, you've got to fight to win. But there always comes, there always comes that point in time where the line is drawn and you, you either do or you don't. And, and, and you, you cannot depend upon an army of people that are afraid, that are going to hesitate because they're going to get beaten. But what I was thinking about this afternoon is the fact that, you know, Gideon might have detected that. Did you ever stop and think just maybe that played a part in Gideon putting out uh, the, the, the fleece? Because he could detect himself that, that the heart of most of the people was fearful. But at any rate, those that are fearful don't make good soldiers, and so they're just granted permission to leave. You know, I learned a long, long time ago now that a pastor has to be very careful about begging people to stay. And, and you know, you, ne- you never want to see people leave. I, I mean, well, there are exceptions to that. But very few. Yeah, you know, and, and in fact, I've mentioned this several times, and Bev and I are sitting around talking, and we've often thought, you know, you think just since we've moved here, if all of the people that, you know, that, that ever came, you know, our guests, and some of them come for a week or two, and some of them for several months, and, and then they'd move on. We've had uh, <laughs> we've had some interesting uh, experiences. We've had people come in and and announce that God had sent them here, and uh, on occasions uh, we've had one woman that just insisted to Bev that God had sent her here to be her uh, to be her helper and to work in the office over there, and. Uh, so I've discovered if these people don't get their way real fast, they get out of here real fast. They just leave. And someone went off and told somebody else that they had heard that they were attending here. And they told this other person, well, 
you'll, you'll, you'll never get in down there. They'll never let you do anything down there. You know, like it's one giant click and that we won't let people break through. Well, those of you that are just in the last year or two or whatever that are involved in the Lord's work, you know that's not true. It's never been true. But here's what I've learned. I've learned those people that drop out, uh, you know, whether they just quit going to church altogether or whether they go somewhere else. And naturally, we want to encourage them if we can. And, you know, we try, try to find out, okay, what's wrong? You know, did I do something? Is there something going on? But I've discovered that it's 99.9% of the time it's some little petty issue. You know, I wouldn't blame them if they said, look, we're going to change churches because you people quit believing that the King James Version is the Word of God. I wouldn't blame them. I'd be leaving too. I wouldn't blame them if they said, you people started denying the deity of Christ or the virgin birth of Christ and some of these major doctrines. I mean, they're justified in leaving for that. But but it's always some little petty issue that if you boil it right down to it, it's because they didn't get their way about something or somebody offended them by saying the wrong thing or or maybe even neglecting and ignoring them or whatever it is, and they leave. And I've discovered if those people will leave the church that easy, because I'm telling you right here and right now, This church can vote next week and do whatever you want to do to run me out. But as long as I'm convinced this is where God wants me, I ain't going. I'm not leaving. If anybody leaves, you can leave because I don't plan on leaving unless God moves me out. That's the only way that I would leave. Every member ought to feel that way. You should never let anybody, including me, run you off. You ought to plant your feet and stay in the fight. But when you beg these people to come back, all you're doing is asking for problems. The last thing we need in the church is people that are involved in gossip and creating divisions in the church. It's amazing to me how that, you know, people have got all of the, all of the different sins categorized. You know, and boy, they look at this, this sin is really terrible and this other sin's not so bad and they, you know, they think of, well, so and so I, look, I've pastored churches where if they saw you coming out of a movie, period, I mean, you were on the list, buddy. I mean, they, they'd do everything they could except exclude you for just going to a movie. Uh, and certainly everybody would feel that some criticism is justified if they saw one of the members staggering out of bar. We shouldn't have any members in the bar. But sometimes those same people that are so critical of other people will come and, and maybe even be involved in some ministry of the church. They might be a Sunday school teacher. They might sing in the choir or whatever. And they will gossip and create division And ultimately, some of them just determined to do everything they can to get others to follow them away from the church. And I've discovered the best thing to do, let them go. I'm not chasing them. I'm not, look, we'd just be inviting disaster to beg people like that to stay in the church. Do I want them to get their heart right? Do I want them to get back in church? Absolutely I do. And I'd help any way I can. But I'm not begging them to come back with the same bad attitude they left with. 
And so there is a, this, look, I haven't forgot what I'm talking about here. This is serious business. They're about to go to war. And it looks like there's no chance they can win this. And the last thing they need is to have some soldiers out there that's not brave enough to get in the fight. Now notice verse number 4. After the departure of those that are fearful, we see the dismissal of the careless. 22,000 fearful men have already left. So, (laughs) we're already down to 10,000. That's bad. But it's going to get worse. It's going to get down to 300. And, and I don't need to read these verses again. You, you got the picture the first time. Those that fell on their stomachs, you know, uh, to drink, naturally they would have taken their eyes off of the enemy, right? I mean, here you, you march them up there to, to the water's edge and boy, they're thirsty. They've been marching. They just fall down on their stomach and begin to drink. They're not looking around. They wouldn't be alert to danger around them. But the others, notice the others, when they got up there, they kneeled down on their knee and they got the water, cupped it in their hands, and brought it up to their mouth. In, in other words, they can look around. They are still alert. And, and, and a soldier has to be alert. So the Bible tells us, you know, we're to be vigilant. We're to be watchful. We're to be alert. And the last thing a soldier can, uh, you, you know, can afford to do is to be distracted by something. And usually it's our desires that distract us. We want to do something else. So, so we're, we're distracted by this. And it can be anything. It can be a sinless thing. I can think of a lot of things that are not sinful And yet there are some people that make those things sinful because all of a sudden they occupy all of their time. They divert their attention away from what is really important. So it might be a desire that diverts their attention, or it might be a difficulty. I've known people that were really good people, and and I mean, you just thought, these are the kind of people that are rock solid, you don't have to worry about them, and all of a sudden some little problem would crop up and they'd have a difficulty in their life. And they just didn't know how to deal with it, and they just fall to pieces, you see. So it might be that. All of a sudden, they turn all of their attention inward, and all they can think about is, oh, me, and all of my problems, and all of my difficulties. I've already planned for, I believe it was in the morning, or is it the one I said? No, in the morning, morning manna. John Newton wrote several letters. Now, the only thing most people know about John Newton is the fact that he wrote Amazing Grace. And so consequently, you know, we're familiar with the name. But he also wrote a lot of letters. And you'll find one in Morning Manna in the morning. And it has to do with this very thing. The people that are just swallowed up with grief to the point that all, you know, all they, all they can think about is the problems that they're going through. And I'm, I'm telling you, that's a dangerous thing. For your attention to be diverted off of the main thing for any reason is dangerous. Turn over in your Bibles for just a minute. Leave your, leave your finger here, a Bible marker. We're coming right back. But over in Second Timothy, I want you to notice a very important statement that Paul makes to Timothy. Chapter 2, Second Timothy, chapter 2. And I want you to notice what he says in verse number 4. 
He says, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. So if we're going to be involved in the army of the Lord, if we're going to get in the battle, if we're going to stay in the fight, if we're going to win the war, so to speak, we can't become entangled in all of these other things. You've heard me say a lot of times, I had dear preacher friends that tried to get me involved in selling insurance or making investments in uh, rental houses and all kinds of stuff to supplement my income back when I was younger, you know, and... Uh, there's not anything sinful about that uh, unless, 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 you know, it distracts me to the point that I can't do what I ought to do. Uh, look, it, it can be, it can be, a, you know, a hundred different things. And we cannot afford to get all entangled in all of these other things. I, I made a bad mistake for just a little while about my second or third year in the ministry. Now, I made more than one, but just one I'm talking about. And, and that was, it was back during a time where, where uh, you know, everybody was worried about national security and communism and that. And, and it got so it seemed like every message for several months there, I was preaching on something that related to communism and and so on and so forth. And I mean, and, and all of the things I said, you know, all were true, but but Satan used that to divert my attention away from the main thing. And that can happen to any of us at any time. And that's what this is all about. All of all of those that were not alert, I mean, they just got up there, fell on their stomach, and all they could think of is, man, I just want a drink of water. And God said, we don't need people like that. Let them go. So, all right, now we have the departure of the fearful and the dismissal of the careless. So let's look at the design of God's plan. What in the world, what in the world is God trying to do? Well, we need to understand that God needs servants that are careful as well as courageous. Think with me. It's one thing to have courage. We had a, we had a little rat terrier named Hacksaw that bit a good number of our church members when we lived over on the other place. And so when we were living out at, out at Porter, Hacksaw would come in all bloodied up and b- because he was just about that tall, but he'd jump on any dog, any size, made no difference. He thought he could whip anything. He was courageous, but he was stupid because he'd jump on them big dogs and they'd just chew him up. So we've got to be careful as well as courageous and boy, when you look through the Bible, you see that a lot of harm has been done by carelessness. Just not being careful. Well, whenever we look at God's plan and the design of it, and as we look this over, I believe there are three things here, three reasons why God reduced the army down to only 300 men. First of all, and we don't have to guess about this, verse number four tells us that they were being proven of the Lord. They were being proven by the Lord. 
And uh, notice what he says here in verse number 4. And the Lord said unto Gideon, the people are yet too many. Bring them down to the water. And notice, I will try them. That is, I'm going to put them to the test. And you know, God often lets difficult things come into our life in order to test our faith. We could spend an hour just going through different verses in the Bible and reading. But I I want you to look back in Deuteronomy chapter number 8. And since this relates to the same people, the nation of Israel, I want you to notice in chapter 8, in these first three verses, he said, All of the commandments which I command thee this day shall ye observe to do, that ye may live, see, they're for your own good, and multiply... And go in and possess the land which the Lord sware unto your fathers. And thou shalt remember all of the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness. To Now notice, here's the reason that little word too is telling us why God's doing this. To humble thee, to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, and neither did thy fathers know. Now notice, that he might make thee to know that a man doth not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. In other words, the Israelites, they were wondering to themselves what in the world is going on. And you'll remember on that journey, they began to complain to Moses, said, Why in the world did you ever bring us up out of the land of Egypt to kill us? That's what they said. Did you just bring us out here to kill us? Is that the only reason we're here? And they began to hunger for the leek and the onion and the melons and the garlic and all of the things they had back in Egypt, but they forgot that in Egypt they were slaves and forced into hard labor. And now they're free. And they're, they're evidently expecting it all to be fun and games and just get anything they want. And it's, n- it's not that way. Because God is putting them to the test. That's the point of all of that. And over and over again, the Bible reminds us, and Peter said that the trying of our faith is like, you know, being put in the fire. And he, he, he literally tells us that we shouldn't be surprised by this. It shouldn't shock us that our faith is being tested. But going back to Gideon, the test here is unknown to the people. Because there is no, no explanation given here that all they have to go on is instructions from their leaders to guide them. You know, had they known that a test was being conducted, now think about it, had they known a test was being conducted, don't you think they probably would have acted differently? But they don't know. And so, because they don't know, they're not acting out of character. They're not trying to impress somebody. They're just doing what they do. And that's what God wanted to see. What will you do when nobody is watching? What will you do when you don't know you're being put to the test? Because that's what God's looking at. 
And they just fall on their stomach and began to drink water, not looking for the enemy or anything. And God said, I can't use you. This involved a common everyday experience. Water. We all need water, right? We all have to drink. It wasn't anything out of the ordinary. The Lord didn't say, now look, in determining the number of people that is going to the army with you, I want to see how many push-ups they can do or how many times they can chin themselves. We're going to have to check their time in the mile. He didn't check any of that. It was just a common, ordinary, everyday thing. I want to watch how they get a drink. God looks at those common things in our life. You know, and again I say, you know, if the Lord said, now this is a test, boy, we put on our smiley face, and I mean, man, we're on our best behavior. That's not what impresses God. It's those common everyday, ordinary things in our life that tell what we really are. So they're being proven. But secondly, there's another reason. They're actually being protected. Go back to our text and look at verse number 2 again. In verse number 2 it says, The Lord said unto Gideon, The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. Now listen to this. Lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, My own hand hath saved me. You you see, God is protecting them from pride, because you mark it down, when this battle was over, nobody could say that Israel won because they had a superior army. Nobody could say that. They've just got 300 over there. I mean, it's obvious that when it's all said and done, God had to be the one to give them the victory. And they would have had nobody to praise except the Lord. Nobody could come up to Gideon and say, man, you are the most brilliant military leader I've ever seen in my life. How did you come up with a strategy like that? That's simply amazing. No. And and nobody could brag about, you know, the power and the strength and the abilities of the soldiers. No, because God designed every detail of this in such a way that when it's all said and done, nobody gets any praise whatsoever except the Lord. You know, that's exactly what Paul said to the Corinthians when God, he said, God hath chosen the what? The foolish things. The things that are weak, the things that are despised. A lot of people think, oh, you know, God never could use me because I don't have any great ability. I'm not an intellectual giant. I, you know, I guess God could never use me. Oh, no, no, you got it wrong. You're exactly the kind of person God's looking for. Because it's not about you, it's about God, and it's about glorifying Him, not us accomplishing something. I, 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 I probably said this myself, but I know I've heard it a number of times. I've heard people say, you know, have you ever stopped to think about all of the, what wonderful things God could have done through Elvis Presley if he had just been saved and living for the Lord? Well, yeah. But God can do all of those wonderful things through somebody that can't sing a lick. 
God doesn't need Elvis Presley. I'll tell you one thing. I, as, as much as I was an Elvis fan, I, I would much rather listen to somebody that loves the Lord that is, has far less talent than to listen to someone that's got all of this great talent that doesn't care anything about God. Because when it's all said and done, the only thing that matters is, is, is God glorified in this. So they're being proven, but they're also being protected. You know, immediately, whenever I think of that, Paul comes to my mind, 2 Corinthians chapter number 12. You remember the story? There he was given a thorn in the flesh. That doesn't make any sense. This, this probably was the greatest man living on earth at that time. I mean, at least he had been there on my list. He's a spiritual giant. He's a faithful servant of God. He's, he's just everything a Christian ought to be. And, and, and the Lord allowed a messenger of Satan to come and to buffet him. Why? He hasn't done anything wrong. Well, it wasn't for correction. It was for prevention. You'll remember he was a man that had just been caught up into the third heaven, saw things that was not lawful for man to utter. And lest he be lifted up with pride, God gave him a thorn in the flesh. And instead of removing the thorn, you remember Paul said, three times I asked God to take this away, and God refused. And you know, you might be living with a difficulty in your life, with a problem in your life. Don't get angry with God about that. Don't get bitter. Don't quit. There's a reason God lets things Go on. It's not that God approves of what's going on in your life. It might be some great difficulty, but remember what I've said so many times. God either causes everything that happens in your life. If He doesn't cause it, He allows it. Satan can't do anything to you that God does not allow. God has to give His permission and allow Satan to do that. And God allows bad men to do Bad things, and sometimes we get caught in the middle, and we're on the horns of a dilemma, and we're hurting, and we get bitter, and we don't understand God. And why is it that as much as I love the Lord, I have to live with this problem that I've got? It just might be because if you didn't have that problem, you wouldn't be worth two cents to the kingdom of God. So God didn't take away the problem. God said, my grace shall be sufficient. And His grace is sufficient for you and for me. So Gideon is being protected in all of this. Israel is being protected. Not only that, they're being provoked. I'm using that in a good way. They're being provoked to trust God. You see, God often designs the events of our life in such a way that really... You really, you can't do anything but trust Him or, or know that you're going to go down for the count. And it's a serious mistake for us to think, and some people do, but it's a serious mistake for us to think God's trying to make life easier for us. That God's primary concern is for our comfort. What God is doing 
is trying to use us to the greatest possible degree. He is working, according to Romans 8, 29, He's working to conform us to the image of His dear Son. You know, we all know Romans 8, 28, right? All things work together for good to those who love the Lord who are called according to His purpose. Boy, we cling to that. But why does God do that? Why does God let those bad things happen that He's going to use for good? Because God already predestinated us, what? To be conformed to the image of His Son. That was God's plan from the beginning. That's what God is working to do. And let me tell you, that's not painless. Whenever we think about Christ and the price that He paid, it was a painful experience. And for us to be followers of Christ, it's going to be a painful thing. So sometimes those things that seem to be working against you are actually working for you. Some of you might remember a poem that someone wrote many years ago. I I can't remember who it was. He wrote a poem about the little kite. I've got it somewhere in in the back of my Bible, I think. And and this little kite was up there, you know... uh, let me make sure I get this right. Up there in the air, and the little cat was complaining about the guy on the ground had the string attached and just let me go. Boy, if he had just let me go, I could just go anywhere I wanted to go. And he's complaining about that string holding him back. Just like a lot of people complaining that, you know, that God just won't let them do what they want to do, get what they want to get. And by the time the poem is over, the little cat began to realize that the thing holding him back was holding him up. The string that's holding him back is holding him up. You cut the string and what happens? The cat's going to end up on the ground broken. It's the force that's generated against the kite by the string that holds that kite up there. The things that seem to be working against you in reality are working for you, for your good in some way. I didn't say the thing was good. It's bad. It's painful. But God wants to use it for some good. So trusting God does not mean that we are exempted from from problems, and it does not mean we are exempt from effort, by the way. To the contrary, you'll notice that, and we'll see this as we go on in this story, that God demanded effort from them. He didn't have to, did He? God could have reduced the number down to 300 and said, All right, y'all just sit right over there now. You just watch me. Watch me at work. I don't even need you. And God could have sent lightning bolts out of the sky, just left the Midianites all dead. But He didn't do that. Kind of like the feeding of the 5,000 with the, you know, the five loaves and the two fishes the little boy had. What, what did the Lord do? The Lord used those people that were there, the disciples. He distributed to them and said, now you take it and you give it out to them. He got them involved in it. He didn't have to do that. 
He could just rain down loaves of bread from heaven, right? But he didn't do that. So I want you to understand that trusting God does not exempt you from effort. Kind of like the old saying, God feeds the sparrow, but he doesn't throw the worm in the nest. He expects the sparrow to get out there and to do what he can. But look, when we do what we can, God does what we can't. And so we need to trust Him. And sometimes when we get in these bad places, the reason is, is God is teaching us, provoking us to trust Him. And I want you to notice the kind of people that God uses. And I'm going to make this quick. I'm not going to elaborate, but as you look at the story, here's what you discover. The kind of people that God uses, they are obedient to leadership. Even when it seems strange and stupid. Remember, Gideon was a new leader. He's unproven. And they're following this man to do something that seems absolutely stupid. And they're willing to follow him. And let me tell you, no church is ever going to prosper if it's not willing to follow the leadership of its pastors. It'll never happen, folks. That doesn't, that doesn't mean that the pastors are perfect, because we're not. But somebody's got to be the quarterback. And, and for a church to succeed, there has to be respect for the authority that God place there. And that's what we see here. Obedience to leadership. Secondly, they were alert to danger. Those that God used were alert to danger. They cupped their water in their hands and brought it up to their mouth and their eyes on the enemy. Not only that, but they are confident and they are courageous and they were dependable. You don't read about any of these 300 dropping out, do you? I mean, they're there for the long haul. They're in this thing to win it. They're determined to finish what they start. That's the kind of people that God needs, and that's the kind of people that God blesses. You know what I do every time that somebody drops out over some little frivolous reason? You know what I do? One of the first things I do is to think about all of the people that have not dropped out over the years. Amen. And you just look around and you think, boy, there's Earl and Beverly Black. And I mean, man, they have been here except for when they moved away for a while. You know, they've been here. And I could go on and just keep naming names. And boy, they are rock solid, you know. Uh, all of these other people that, that every week I watch Bubba back there raise his kids in the, in the church and what have you. And you, you, ju- you just know these kind of people are going to be there through thick and thin. And let me tell you, but we've gone through some rough water and difficult times. And God's brought us through it. Now, we're about to spend most of the money that we have, as everybody knows, on this building project. But just in case you don't know it, uh, we've gone from a time not too many years ago to where Brother Ron would give, give Bev and I our checks and say... Uh, now, don't deposit the check Monday morning. Wait until after I've made the deposit because there's not enough money in the bank to, to cover that. And I hope you don't use what I'm about to say next as a motive to stop giving because we need every penny we can get to build and what have you. For the first time in our history, we've got a million dollars in the bank. 
We need every penny of it. But what I'm saying is, the, the, the way that happens is because people have been faithful and they've stayed by the stuff. And we're not, we're not just saving up money in order to accumulate money. I mean, I mean, if we're not going to do something with it, let's just start distributing among the missionaries. That'd, that'd be far better, but we know we've got a need. And God, look, I'm simply saying that God honors our faithfulness. And we, we need to have the attitude, these people, they're determined that they're going to finish what they start. It's not going to be easy for 300 to march out there against all of those thousands of trained assassins. But man, they, they just follow this young, dumb leader right out there into battle. And God gives them the victory. And there's no need for us to suffer defeat. There's no reason why God can't complete what He started here in this church. Several times I've commented, man, oh man, you know, it'd be nice to be 20 years younger, you know, because I envision great things for this church. I really do. It's talking about Brother Dearmore being that old veteran missionary, and I thought he was 90, but I found out he's 85. He's just 12 years older than I am, and 12 years go by in a hurry. And uh, But what I'm saying is, is man, I, I, I just believe God's going to do great things through this church if we let Him, if we allow Him to work in our lives. Faith is just amazing. It's not strength. For the just shall live by faith, the Bible says. And in all of this, we see Gideon's faith. Hey, you've you've got to say the bottom line is God honors faith. But we can't do any other way. God will do if we trust Him. Let that be your challenge tonight. To trust God for whatever you need in life. Let's all stand. Father, how we thank you tonight for this, this great story that's more than a story, an actual historical event. A grand display of your wisdom and your power. And I pray tonight that we might each one be challenged by what we But what we see you do with Gideon and the nation of Israel against those overwhelming odds. And Lord, today we think of a church here that wants to do your will and the things that you want to accomplish through this church. Lord, help me to not get in the way. Help me to not misguide these people. Help me to not discourage these people. And Lord, help each and every one of us here tonight be willing to, to follow your lead and to do whatever you would have us to do. And, and to simply trust you in those areas, the things that we can't understand, the things that we can't explain, the times that we just feel so very helpless. And Lord, there are folks here tonight that uh, on a personal level, that are going through great difficulties, that are struggling with giants in their life. And I just pray tonight that you'll use the truth of this message to be an encouragement to their heart 
as painful and tough as life is, regardless of what happens, you can make some good, some way, come out of that experience. So help us to focus on that, Lord, and that you'll be glorified as a end result, for we beg it in Jesus' name. We're going to stand and we're going to sing, and who knows?